0: Luke chapter 19, verse 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, "'We do not want this man to reign over us.' When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, "'Lord, your mina has made 10 minus more.' And he said to them, "'Well done, good servant.' because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to them, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. But he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And am I coming? I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minus. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. May God bless the reading this word. This morning, I have the privilege of introducing, as you've probably heard in my prayer, uh, my brother, Lauren chi who will be preaching for the first time with us here in CB um i think many of you are very familiar with him he was an elder of our church previously and definitely if you have been following along on a lot of our cv live worships you have seen his many faces and many talents as he has worshiped uh he's led us in worship with five of his uh faces on a personal level i'm very thankful to lauren i've known him for over 20 years and he has always been someone who has really encouraged me and supported me in my faith and I actually think of him as one of those who have uh, encouraged me to follow after the Lord. Um, I'm particularly thankful for uh, his model of faithfulness and his model of servanthood. So um, I'm delighted to invite Lauren here to preach with us today. Lauren. Good
1: morning. It's nice and peaceful around here, um, but I really miss seeing you all and worshiping together with you in person. Um, We'll have to wait a bit. Today's sermon is also about waiting. And what we do while we wait is about... Sorry. Okay. All right. So what did you do while you were waiting just now? How did you feel while you waited? That was just 10 seconds. We're not so good at waiting, are we? We're patient, we're all about instant gratification. My company is also about the inability to wait. I work for Amazon. Three-day shipping, that's an eternity. How about one-day shipping? How about maybe drones someday? We don't want to have to wait for anything. Those three dots, the typing awareness indicator, um, a New York Times article, calls them as one of the most stress-inducing things in our lives, possibly, quote, the most important source of eternal hope and ultimate letdown in our lives. Well, here's a parable that says we're gonna have to wait a long time. In this case, it's about waiting for the kingdom, not about earthly things. And it's about what we do while we wait. But fortunately, boy, is it worth the wait. Let's take a look. Verse 11. As they heard these things, so as we start off, we're about to start a parable, and this one's about money and salvation, and a whole bunch of really good stuff. Um, but it follows a story um, about Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who had just received salvation from Jesus. Um, it has this well-known quote from Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. With that in the backdrop, we get into this parable. and verse 11, he, Jesus, went on to tell him a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. We hear a lot about the disciples' misunderstanding of the timing and nature of the kingdom of God. They thought he was just about to start establishing his earthly kingdom, Think about like how for like July 4th or the Boston Marathon or other things like, you know, big events in Boston, people come from like everywhere and descend um, onto Boston City. Streets become crazy crowded. It's similar to that a few days before Passover. Um, that's when like the Jews come in to gather around into Jerusalem from all around Israel. Things get crazy crowded. There's a lot of excitement in the air and they're wondering if Jesus was going to make an appearance. Now. They weren't disappointed, visualized Jesus riding into town in front of his followers, palm branches, people laying down their cloaks, shouting, Hosanna. It's like, oh yeah, our future king, he's actually here. He's gonna come show those Romans who's boss. Luke 19, 37 to 38, the very next set of verses after this parable, whole crowds of disciples began joyfully to praise God. Blessed is the king. If you're having trouble imagining that, maybe think about something closer to home or something more timely. We're in election season right now. You know, if it weren't for COVID, think about the massive crowds welcoming your candidate or your president or your vice president. He or she is going to change the world. Take our money. You know, we're 100% behind you. Um, but a few months later, in this case, a week later, maybe your presidential candidate loses. There's no more parties, no more bandwagons. Similarly, within seven days, just seven days of Jesus triumphantly entering Jerusalem, Jesus will be crucified. All of his cheering followers, they're all going to be scattered and hiding. Jesus tried to foreshadow this. For example, the chapter right before this one, um, in Luke 18, 33 to 34, he says, They will kill him. On the third day, he will rise. But they, the disciples, understood none of these things. Now, why not? Are the disciples just dense? It's easy to think that the disciples are foolish. This is one of those, like, who knows how many parables or warnings that Jesus has given them. But this is also a parable and a warning for us. From the Bible, we know Jesus is coming back. Are we also stubborn or ignorant in the face of that? Do we eagerly expect it? Maybe, you know, you well in pre-COVID or post-COVID situation, you're getting picked on or beat up in school. Maybe your grades are suffering. Maybe you're like, oh, I wish I didn't have to do that project that's coming up. Lord, come back. I used to listen to news radio um, on my drive to and from work. It sometimes got a little bit depressing. And and yikes, there's always something going on, something the world is falling apart. Lord, come back. Sometimes we yearn for God's kingdom. But then sometimes as days go by, life goes on. Do we stop yearning for Jesus' return? Do we start accepting things the way they are? Maybe we just throw our hands in the air and stop trying. You know, why is it worth doing God's work when all of a sudden, bam, something like COVID hits and like kind of just like throws everything around and and like now nothing is changing and we're just kind of sitting still here. I'm of course not blaming you if you feel this way. Um, I am certainly also not trying to say that the world is all doom and gloom. But My point is that Jesus is telling his disciples to wait. They think he's just about to come and establish his kingdom, his earthly kingdom, overthrow the Romans. Um, but Jesus is telling them to wait, and that it's going to get worse before it gets better. They're going to go through some ups and downs, just like we go through ups and downs here as we wait. But this is still a story of hope. Because for the disciples, even if they don't understand it right now, when they see Jesus crucified... Hopefully they'll think back to this parable and know that even though he's gone and even though they're in the downtime, the downstate, there's hope because he's coming back. Let's see in this parable, actually how a few people handled the waiting. So in verse 12, he, he said, Jesus said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country and appointed himself king to have himself appointed king and then to return. Verse 13, calling his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. The disciples would have understood that the nobleman is Jesus, of course, um, as we as as do we. And here we go with the waiting. He goes off to a distant country. He's not returning anytime soon. So picture this: like, listen, servants, I'm going to California. Yeah, we're in COVID. I don't want to fly, so I'm gonna walk there, off to California. And the emperor's um, a busy guy in California. So who knows how long I'll be I'll be 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 staying there before I can come back and there's no wifi there and you know, the postal service is kind of going through a mess right now. So I can't even send letters home, um, you know, so I'm not gonna be able to even write back. So in the meantime, you know, here's 500 bucks. Uh, stay here, hold up the fort while I'm gone and eventually I'm gonna come back. Um, in the parable, he says, engage in business, which is probably not an unusual request. Very similar, right? You have the nobleman; he has his land, he has his business, he's going away for a while and he needs someone to do the work while he's gone. Um, Amida, as I alluded to earlier, is about $500 U.S. today. It's about four months of, of, of a wage for like an agricultural worker. Um, so that's the setting for this. No man going away. It's going to be gone for a long time. Ask his servants to take care of his business until he returns. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So that's a gussy move. You're opposing your ruler. They undoubtedly knew that if he got his kingdom, they probably would be punished. But more interesting too is like, why does Jesus lay out this parable, which is an allegory to him, and say that these people hate him? You know, he's um, describing himself. Uh, He could have said instead, you know, the nobleman was so amazing that some of his citizens were jealous of his basketball skills that they went to oppose his coronation or something really, really flattering. why does he describe himself this way and how people feel about him this way? This is again foreshadowing the opposition to Jesus. All the way back from the Old Testament, some of the descriptions of Jesus or the foretelling of Jesus are not so warm and fuzzy. Isaiah 55, three, he was despised, rejected by men. A Few days later, in John 19, 15, during Jesus's trial, you know Jews will start shouting, we have no king but Caesar. We have the three denials of Peter. We have the disciples fleeing and hiding. We have the opposition that Christians like us you know, face today. John 15, 18 says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Jesus is foreshadowing the hate that he and us and Christians will have after he's crucified. Fast forward a long time now, we're back to the parable. Hey, I finally made it back from California on foot. Here I am servants what's been going on so verse 15 when he returned having received the kingdom he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had done uh, with by, what they had gained by doing business again not unusual to the disciples to hear this parable um, nor to the servants the servants would know that he's going to take account he, now the nobleman is back he put the servants in charge gave them some money what what came out of that Verse 16, the first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas. And he, the nobleman, said to the, said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you should have authority over ten cities. And the second one came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he, the, the nobleman, or Jesus, said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Now, first, there's some specific wording that I want to get into here that you should You should notice, which is that in both both cases, the servants say back to the well, the king, "Your mina has." It's not like you know you gave me five hundred dollars, and now like I, through my extraordinary business acumen and talent, like I have made all this money back. Both of them say, "Your mina has made ten minas more," or "Your mina has made five minas more." It's less focus on the person and more focus on the gift. And this is a parable, so you could think, you could say that this is deliberate. Like, sure, we put in our effort, but, you know, you don't earn $5,000 by, by, from $500 on your own. Any telemarketer, robocaller, or something tells you otherwise, it's, it's not true. You know, in this case, it's the Mina, it's not you. It's a power of God's gift to you. Sure, you do your own effort and things, but again, you know, the, the parables often speak in a little bit hyper, hyperbolically. Um, but like, you know, $500 to $5,000, if any of us could do that, then, you know, they would not be servants. They would be like, the, they would be the noblemen. So your Mina has made 10 Mina's. The gift from God is what enables us to, to do these things, to multiply. All right. So your Mina produced $500 is not much, but when it's God's gift, it's able to do remarkable things, and having been faithful with that, you get a disproportionate awards. What does the nobleman say?s Because you've been faithful in very little, here's ten cities. So first, clearly the nobleman is generous. Um, you know, despite the fact that some of the citizens hated him and sent this delegation off to him or things, he gave some five hundred dollars. They produce a little bit of profit, and you get to rule over ten cities. Now here's a sticky question. How come I got five cities and the other guy got 10 cities? Is that fair? Is it rewards in heaven because he or she was able to produce more minas than I was able to? You know, the Bible does talk about rewards in heavens. Um, so maybe, but I, the, the point, this parable doesn't really emphasize that. The, 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 the nobleman or the king doesn't give like, you know, like more or less praise to one or the other really. So the point is here is that, again, fundamentally is that we do a little and we get back a lot. Nobody is complaining here. Certainly those servants are complaining here. All right, now it gets a little darker. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Now, if you look at this and ask, like, why did the servant not produce more minas? The servant's behavior actually doesn't make too much sense here, does it? He feared of the nobleman, fine, um, but somehow this caused him to not take any action. It seems like a bit of an excuse. Um, and in fact, like then, the nobleman in verse 22 said to him, the servant, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that it was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Verse 23, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might, be able, might have collected it with interest. So first, as an aside, um, just so we make sure that we interpret the parable correctly, is the nobleman doesn't affirm the servant's portrayal of him. He doesn't affirm that he's a wicked man, um, but he merely says, well, if that's what you think, like, even if you thought that I was this wicked, evil person, that still doesn't excuse you. The second thing you notice here is he says, I condemn you with your own words. For us, like, ultimately, there are no excuses. We will all have no excuses for God, um, before God when he returns. If we're disobedient and do not love God and think we can outsmart God to escape his wrath, we're kidding ourselves. And notice the parable doesn't say something like, the third servant wasn't as great with money that he had earned ten minas and therefore he was punished for it. It's not because he wasn't able to make a lot of money. In fact, he could have just put some, put it in the bank and that wouldn't have cost any risk or any, any, required any business sense or something like that. So it wasn't because this third servant was not able to turn a profit with Amina. It was because of his attitude. It's because he doesn't have a submissive, loving attitude toward the boss that the boss calls him a, a wicked servant. This is a pretty important point to recognize. Um, you know, God is not going to say to you, um, someday, well, you know, you tried, but you're just not as competent enough. Um, If only you hadn't messed up on those in that Bible memorization class or something like that, Um, you know. So even this verse, even though it's a verse of punishment or towards punishment and wickedness, it gives us hope because a servant is condemned for what he thinks of the nobleman and uh, not his capability, not his giftedness. Similarly, the first two servants are rewarded because they were faithful. They were good, not because they were amazing businessmen. So ultimately, as we reflect on this, what is our view of Jesus? If we love him, that his gift, the mina, will work through us to serve his kingdom, and we will be rewarded. Going on to verse 24, and he he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas already. You know, verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but to the one who does not, even what he has will be taken away. It's pretty harsh, right? Um, but it does stress that there is a big dichotomy between those who are rewarded and those who are punished. It stresses too, once again, is that I know I've been broken record about this, but that the reward is disproportionately great. Those who have will be given more. You're given a mina, you end up ruling 10 cities. Um, verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, why did Jesus have to add this line? This just makes the master seem really, really mean. Um, but if you if you relate this to, or, or put your shoes in the disciples who are hearing this back in those times, this is talking about the consequences of actions. You know, the disciples would have expected this to happen. You oppose your king, what do you expect? You send a delegation after him to prevent him from being coronated. What would you expect to happen? Um, and also remember that these, these, these citizens actively tried to sabotage the noblemen. Um, they were clearly his enemies. Uh, again, there's this dichotomy between reward and punishment, those who are faithful and love the king versus those who are wicked and oppose the king. These days, we're often reluctant to talk about punishment. God is love. But justice is a big part of the Bible and God's nature. And these are, these are Jesus' words to talk about this duality. Here's an example that um, sums up the parable actually pretty well from Colossians three, twenty-three to 25. It says, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So these are not fun verses to read. <laughs> Maybe if I had read the passage more clearly beforehand, I would have picked a different week to speak. But it's here, and the meaning is clear. These citizens actively oppose a nobleman being crowned as king, actively op- uh, opposes his rulership over them. Similarly, the wicked servant slandered the nobleman, called him all these bad things to his face, and did nothing with his gift. And both of them were punished. I'll say, even though this parable does end on a note of judgment, remember that the nobleman is also extraordinarily generous to those who are faithful. So we're done with the passage. I'll say it's, it's hard when speaking on something like this to really balance between these two things um, God's grace and his loving nature, and also like, you know, the, the, the punishment and his wrath. In fact, it may be that depending on your personality or what you're going through now or where you are in your faith that you may even, even Either remember this sermon as a one about reward or one about grace or one about punishment. But it's both. It's hard to balance, but let's try to look at both as we go into application. So, a few points I want to make um, for, for us to take home. This point number one is that this story is a warning. The parable talks about three groups of people they're the servants who do business faithfully, the wicked servant who does nothing, and the group of citizens who actively oppose the nobleman, And really, even though there's three, it really ends up just being two groups. It's those who are rewarded and those who are punished. Now, would the disciples have understood that Jesus was forcing them into these two groups, one of these two groups? Probably not, but I mentioned above, the, this, the parable and the circumstances are at least you know common sense of them you know they they had rulers back then those rulers if you didn't obey them would you know would would take out their wrath on you oppose your king badmouth him right in front of his face it's like you're asking for trouble so what about us sure we get it we're in two camps there's reward or punishment and nothing in between but these days sometimes we tend to lean towards grace and self-empowerment i would say you know Back in my day, back in my day, when I was a student, if I did poorly in my class, then I'd fail the class. Um, These days, you have helicopter parents, lawsuits. You have teachers talking about parents being the most difficult part of their job. Seemingly, you can get away with almost anything if you have a good lawyer or if you get on the court of public opinion and social media on your side. You can twist your truth fake news. You can get away with it. You see this on social media all the time. People say or, something, say or do something, it's like right there. It's recorded. Their words are right there in the video. But you can spin a story any way you want. You can get away with things. Contrast this with what Jesus is trying to teach us. In Romans 2.3, it says, do you think you will escape God's judgment? In Hebrews 2.3, how should we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The servant tries to make an excuse and Jesus says, I'll condemn you with your own words. We've all had situations where we lose an argument and then think afterward, if only I had said X or Y. You know, in this parable, there's nothing the servant or the opposers could have said to talk their way out. And that's the point. So we need to ensure that we aren't clouded by our notions of grace or relativism or our ability to get away with things or when we see other people getting away with things, that we ignore the, the warning in this parable. But really, let me flip this around a little so that we don't feel a little too, too depressed about this. Reward and punishment are things that happen to us. But the way this parable frames, you know, the servants and the citizens is more about our view of God. Do we behave like faithful servants? Do we love God? Or do we behave like those who oppose him? So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit more about the faithful. So point two, there's great reward for those who do God's business. The Bible was full of passages about eternal life, the crown of life, the the vision of heaven. I'll read to you from Revelations 21, one to four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." Um, this is such a powerful passage. Um, yet, <laughs> maybe you were starting to zone out a little as I read it. Um, you know, so there's a lot of Christianese imagery. We're kind of used to hearing this. We've heard this a lot. A bride, loud voices. God's dwelling. Um, you know, but I want us to really think about this because this is a big deal. Let's think about like maybe something that's closer to home and use this as a comparison. So right now, getting out of COVID probably feels like heaven to many of us. Imagine the world where you can go to restaurants together, where you can worship in the sanctuary together physically, where you can go on an actual vacation somewhere, play ultimate, get your sweat all over each other, you know, have a land party, watch a movie in a theater physically together, maybe go on a non-virtual date, or see your, your friends physically at school. Everyone across the world um, today clings on to this hope that eventually COVID will be over. We know it'll be over eventually, and it feels like heaven imagining that time. Or, or rather, it'll feel like heaven for a while before it wears off. But of course, it's not heaven. Even though we so look forward to this period after COVID when we can, you know, go to a McDonald's and actually sit down and eat together. It's not heaven. Think about how much greater God's kingdom will be, how much more worth the wait. Point number three, we are all empowered to do God's business. The parable is conspicuously silent here actually about like what you actually do with the figurative mina that God gives you. It it leaves us hanging a bit. It just says everyone gets one mina. Um, maybe to you this is hard to accept, um, you know, that you have the same potential or you have the same mina uh, to serve God's kingdom as everyone else. We're so big into comparing each other. We say, you know, she's so good at singing for worship or like he's so natural at evangelism and these sorts of things. So I'd like you to consider what talent or what mina has God given you? Where do you feel God's conviction for you to serve his kingdom? There's a lot in the New Testament um, along this theme. I'll read from Romans 12:4 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in serving the one who teaches in his teaching the one who exhorts in exhortation the one who contributes in generosity the one who leads with zeal the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness what are our gifts what are your gifts what are you capable of doing i actually feel that our problem as modern day Christians is that we expect too little from God. It's not that we expect too much from God. It's that our prayers are too small. We don't ask and then we're disappointed. This parable is telling us $500 to $5,000 to 10 cities. We can ask for more. God has blessed us with more than we think. Don't ask for too little and be disappointed that you got too little. Ask of God, ask God to use you in ways that even you don't feel that you would be confident in. We have that blessing from God. We can do remarkable things with it, just as the servants who loved the nobleman and were faithful to him were able to produce. Okay. So maybe that sounds great, but maybe you're, 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 thinking your calling is not to prophecy or to exhort. Uh, So let me end with one concrete suggestion. Point four, give hope as a part of doing God's business. This parable talks about waiting and what to do while we wait. Our current COVID situation, as I mentioned before, is one of waiting. We're all suffering. We all can't wait for this to be over. Um, We all have no idea how long we'll be waiting for normalcy, and during this time, many of us are kind of figuratively holding our breath, waiting for those like dot, dot, dots to stop and for the next thing to come. We as Christians have something to give to the world at this time, hope. I'm not saying that we need to be cheerful and joyous all the time in the midst of this pandemic. I'm not saying that we should just stick our heads in the cloud, and ignore what's going on around us and be all happy-go-lucky, but we have hope. Hope shines brighter in the most difficult times. Maybe in normal circumstances, you're surrounded by friends who just have it all, and it's hard to convince them that they need anything. Well, in these times, everyone is super stressed. The CDC reports that um, anxiety disorder rates have increased by four times, um, since fourfold since COVID, uh, COVID, and that 11% of Americans surveyed said that they have seriously considered suicide in the past 30 days. So first... If you are one of those 11%, and if you're feeling hopeless during this time, please get help. Our community is here for you. Please see professionals. Call hotline. It doesn't have to be a Christian professional. This parable and my application are, is not to make you feel guilty or anxious about your situation. Some of you are, are maybe just doing a little bit better. You're, you're just majorly stressed thinking, I'm barely keeping it together. Are you telling me I need to do more and, uh, and share my hope? You know, that's not something that you should feel guilty of either. Similarly, we want to pray for you and we want to help you. Sometimes you give and sometimes you receive. I will say, you know, I am super stressed during this time. I have trouble sleeping a lot. Um, I hate Mondays. Like, it's, it's tough. It's tough for me, just like I'm sure it is tough for you. You know, sometimes I can give, sometimes I receive. But when you do have hope to give, shine with that hope. You can be stressed out and you can still give hope. In fact, that's sometimes the best time because you're a lot more relatable versus if you act like you have not a care in the world. You have this remarkable gift, this mina from God, and you can do amazing things with it. Um, So, for example, if your friend tells you they're struggling, offer to pray for them if they don't mind. I don't mean right there, but tell them that you like to pray for them regularly. This generally doesn't go wrong as long as you're not sanctimonious about it. If you're previously afraid of inviting your friends to church, do it now. It's easy and it's anonymous. They can just sign in and stay as long as, or short as they'd like, and no one will know that they're there, that they were there. Similarly, many people are craving social interaction. If so, then invite them, your friends, to your small group Zoom hangout. You know, play some Jackbox games or something in the hangout, Um, to you know, something natural, and then focus your conversations on how you can help and support each other. It is during times of darkness that light shines the brightest Jesus himself faced this here he was less than seven days from being tortured ridiculed abandoned and then killed he's coming triumphantly into Jerusalem with people laying their palm branches and things and laying their cloaks and and everything and it's like it's amazing and everyone is behind him Uh, you can almost see like the balloons kind of coming down from the skies and things seven days he's going to be crucified His disciples, think about this, his disciples are the people that he was trying to influence and teach like for his whole ministry. And what would they do in seven days? One betrayed him, one denied him three times, and they all fled and went into hiding just by the end of the week. But it was in this dark time that Jesus' light shined the brightest, that he brought salvation and conquered death. We're not Jesus. But we, you, have salvation to bring to your friends. You have hope that you can give them. And boy, do we need it right now in this dark time as we're all going through COVID. So again, if you are in need of hope yourself, please come talk to us. Have us pray for you. We have a benevolence fund if you're struggling financially. We are here to help or talk to a professional. But if you can give hope during these dark times, then give hope. Give hope. This is perhaps a meter that God has given you to shine during these dark times. And finally, as we close, remember, He is worth the wait. Look at our COVID situation. Someday, imagine this. When things go back to normal, you'll be able to go to someone's birthday party. You'll be able to watch them take out the birthday cake with the candles, blow out the candles on the cake, get their germs and spit all over it. And we'll divide up the cake and you all eat it and you don't worry about getting sick. Again, if that feels like heaven, if thinking about that helps you get, get through the day knowing that eventually we're going to be able to experience something like that or our present situation will go away, imagine the reward when Jesus returns and says to us, good and faithful servant. I went with this quote from one of our worship songs. There will come a day standing face to face. In a moment, we will be like Him. He will wipe our eyes dry, take us up by His side, and forever we will be His. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you that you are our hope. Lord, we eagerly await your coming and your return. Lord, we thank you for all the gifts that you have given us to get us through this time and to shine with your light. Um, Lord, would you carry us through this time? Whatever struggles we have, um, would you, would you comfort us with whatever blessings that we can give to others? Would you convict us to share those blessings? Um, and above all, Lord, uh, we love you and we eagerly await your return. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.